Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? Happy May Day. Happy May Day. I uh, wish I could have been out in the streets today, but I am uh, in isolation because I have COVID. (laughs) Oh, no, you do? Yeah, but it's been fine. So, um, you know, I can't totally complain, but I did miss all of the May Day activities uh, but it looked like there were quite a lot. Um, not, I mean, in Quebec City, there's always something on May Day. There's usually actually several rallies on May Day. Um, but there were actions all across Canada, it seemed like. Yeah, which is really, really great. I mean, I would have gone to a May Day action where I am locally if I wasn't holed up writing my very last paper for law school. Which oh, is, yay. of course, on defending the police. And so... This is how I'm going out, (laughs) writing my last paper, uh, working on May Day as a student because students are workers. Um, But here we are. This is this is where we're at. Sorry to hear that you have COVID and I hope that you make a speedy recovery. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, so far, so far, so good. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Great. Uh, Nora, we're getting a lot of really great feedback from our episode last week, and I just uh, wanted to mention that and thank the listeners who have reached out and thanked us for uh, having a discussion about organizing culture and kind of perfectionism and how difficult organizing culture can be. Uh, I think it was a good episode. It actually is, I think, one of my favorites, and so I'm glad to hear from many of you that uh, it was one that you found really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of, of positive feedback as well. Um, I, I think that, you know, th- this is something that activists have talked about for a long time. It's it's a really interesting, I, I guess I should say, if you haven't listened to the episode, we untangle maybe some of the difficulties of relationship building within leftist spaces. It really seems like it's a hallmark of the moment that we're in right now, the time that we're organizing in right now that people are really struggling with how exactly do we do we do these things? How do we criticize one another? How do we have debates? How do we refrain from harming one another? What does harm even look like? That kind of thing. Um, so thank you so much to everybody that commented t- uh, on the episode. And like that one person that didn't like it. Um, I mean, you probably aren't going to listen to this episode, so I, I don't know. But if you're up to it, let us know why you didn't like it. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, there's only one comment I saw of someone saying that they thought it was fucking stupid on episode. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, you sent me that comment, so I saw it too. And I just like, you know, if you are listening to us and you think that something that we said is fucking stupid, like we definitely want to engage with you. So please just give us a little bit more than it's fucking stupid because obviously we don't think it's stupid. Otherwise, we wouldn't have said it. But if you give us something more, then maybe we'll learn something and we can, you know, have a conversation about like the... Um, nuances of whatever it is that you disagree with Mm -hmm. because you could be right yeah or we could be right yeah or neither of us could be right or we could both be right so (laughs) let's get into it there's a lot of options out there yeah um we have a bunch of people to thank this week and so before we get into the episode thanks to everybody who sent us money for the first time or changed their donation we appreciate everything that you send our way um praise or even criticism or even donations or even just applause, whatever. You're all amazing. (laughs) 
Thanks specifically this week, though, to Emily, Enver, Elizabeth, and Neil. Wow, that was almost all E names. Um, and then we ended with an N name. Uh, thank you so much to you folks for supporting the podcast and to everybody who has shared it, made comments, sent us feedback. We love you all. We love you all. Okay, so um, there's a couple of things that we want to talk about today. One is a bit of an update on medical assistance in dying legislation. Uh, Nora, you've got some things to tell me? Yes. And so folks will remember um, about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, Sandy and I had an episode on the new legislation um, that was being considered by the federal government, which was expanding medical assistance in dying, which is assisted suicide, um, to allow for people to have medical assistance in dying when their death was not reasonably foreseen. And this was the result of a court challenge to a federal uh, law that said that the law was too restrictive by saying that the only people that can have medical assistance in dying had to have a reasonably foreseeable death. Like it had to be somewhat imminent. You couldn't just say, well, I'm going to die in five years and now I want made. And so that was expanded last year. And, and not just that, but it was also expanded to include mental illness. And so now we've been operating in this new made regime. And Sandy, I don't know if you've seen some of these stories, but there has been a wave of stories of people who have chosen made and who chose made because they couldn't get help for their for whatever they were seeking help for, whatever their condition was, or trying to have help to be able to live in housing that was appropriate or have the kind of services that they needed. Um, I think the last two weeks, there's been three stories alone, and, and I'm you know paying attention to this, so I've seen a couple of other kind of comments about this. It's really concerning, and it is exactly what disability activists said was going to happen when this was expanded. Yeah, I did. I saw two of these stories. Um, they're horrifying. And, you know, I, I think we had an, uh, an episode uh, back when uh, the, the disability filibuster was being, um, was an action that was being done as uh, the government was considering expanding the made legislation, where, as you say, this is exactly what people said was going to happen. And we had um, some discussion about that on the podcast. So for, for those of you who are interested, perhaps we should link in the show notes that previous, um, that previous episode. Yeah, good idea. I also heard this week from someone who never really understood what the show notes were. <laughs> uh, if you listen to the oh. podcast, uh, yeah, if you listen to the podcast on an, on a podcasting app, it's possible that you don't see the show notes. Um, you can always go to www.sandyandnora.com, find the episode that you're talking that we we're talking about or that you're looking for, and um, there's a there's a little write up of the show, and that's where we have an explanation and other links um, if necessary. So, for example, in last week's show, that's where you can get the links that Sandy made for organizing materials for anti-war campaigns and coalitions. But yeah, the, the disability filibuster is back. And so I really, really, really encourage people to look up hashtag disability filibuster. There's events that have been going on now for two weeks and you can go through that hashtag and you find links to old events. And, you know, I watched one last night and um, it featured a doctor. I mean, it featured a lot of people. And the first part featured a doctor who was talking about things like, um, people accessing MAID has been increasing significantly year over year. And while um, with previous versions of MAID, um, there was no difference in the gender balance for people seeking MAID. So like men and women were, were represented more or less equally. What they're finding is now that it's been expanded for, to, to mental illness, women are seeking MAID two times more than men. 
which is wow. like such a such like it's very it's very important for us to keep our eye on that. And in Canada, you know, with death reporting information so slow, we really don't have a good handle on what has happened in the last year with expanded made. And Canada has the most open or free or generous policies of assisted suicide in the world. It's, it's, it's even beyond what, um, what has evolved in Holland and in Belgium, which were the two kind of countries that had the most liberal um, assisted suicide deaths in the world. And, um, and I don't think Canadians know this. Um, and I mean, what strikes me the most is like, this is the most significant change to healthcare in Canada in a generation. And it wasn't funding something. It wasn't overhauling long-term care. It wasn't fixing the hospitals. It wasn't, I mean, it was, it was literally giving Canadians more tools to ask the state to help them die. Like, isn't that stunning? It's stunning. And it's also uh, indicative of the type of system that we live in one in which uh, people who are devalued in all sorts of ways are considered, quote unquote, excess by the system. And then the system attempts to get rid of you through uh, criminalization, through policies that make it harder for you to live or through policies that literally make it easier for you to die. And this is such a horrific and... I mean, this legislation is such just such a fucking awful example of the state, like taking a really egregious step forward to say, like, yeah, yes, yes, um, you are considered excess uh, and here we will not do anything for you, but allow you to end your life. Um, uh, in this situation. And it's, it's, um, I mean, it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It really is horrifying. And, um, and it's, and it's, it's just so grotesque. Like, obviously we know that this is going to disproportionately impact poor people, racialized people. Like this is obviously how it's going to play out. And so often what you hear are the voices of upper class white people, whether or not they live with some sort of disability or illness or they want to access made or they watch their parents suffer and they don't want to suffer like that or whatever the narrative is that people hang on to, it's so often being pushed or advocated by those upper class white people uh, with no regard to what happens in the practice of people accessing made. And so in a, in a society where, you know, housing is not a right, where getting access to housing is very, very difficult, where um, you can, you know, like, you can't afford your medicine, you can't afford to live, like you can't afford to eat well so that you're, you know, maybe mitigating the impacts of some sort of medical condition that you might have that, you know, you, you have to actually control through, I don't know, things like your diet or accessing services that you have to pay for, like all of these things. And and then here we have the, the federal government giving like this carte blanche allowance for, for made. And, and also Sandy, you don't even need to demonstrate that you've tried treatment. Like you don't have to show that treatment has failed, that all options have failed, that you've tried this and you've tried that. And it's like, how is that not built into the legislation? How is there no safeguards like that? It's, it's just so, so stunning. Yeah. It, it really does like prove that this is, 
a, you know, we live in a system that would rather refuse uh, to do what needs to be done to fund the services that people need in order to survive. Uh, it would rather turn away from that option and literally um, be a passive participant in killing people. Just unbelievable. It's really yep. ugly. It really is. It's really, really ugly. So folks should check out the Disability Filibuster and um, and see how they're organizing there and certainly, you know, get educated on the issue. Um, I think that that's really important because this is an issue that um, that there's a lot of information that's missing. And um, and oftentimes supporters have made are like, well, you know, we need to have this control over our lives and it's like, yes, in the, in, you know, we need to have those, that kind of control over our lives. But, but seriously, like we now have a system that is the most permissible in the world for assisted suicide by the state. Like that is, that's something else. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, of course, you know, sure. We, we need to have that sort of control over our lives. Okay. But should the, those who are wealthy have more options available to them than those who are poor? Should the poor only have one option available to them? And should that one option only be death? Because make no mistake, these stories that have been coming out in the last little bit that Nora's referring to, they are not talking about people who have the means to seek alternatives to made. They are talking about people who literally have no other alternative. And that is where the injustice lies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I feel like um, this is in some ways related to our main topic this week, because the way that the legislation is designed, the way that MADE works, the way that uh, so much that has to do with uh, supports uh, for people who are disabled in our society works, really shows that we live in a society that only values you as long as you are productive. And mm. that is a really ugly thing because many of us in this society are um, assumed to not be productive or not being productive enough or considered excess. And, um, you know, I believe that we should live in a society where we are valued simply because human beings are valuable like we are just valuable whether or not we are able to produce we are valuable as a result of our being as a result of the relationships we have uh and so on and so that my friends is one of the central um, goals of uh the workers movement Yes. And so we are recording on May Day, which is why tonight, today, this morning, this afternoon, we are going to be talking about workers' power and how there seems to be these workers' actions sweeping uh, North America. And it's and it's really amazing and very inspiring. But before we start, um, there was this very big rally that happened in Toronto today. And mm -hmm. Sandy, do you know, CBC Toronto, what do you think their first story was? It's May Day. It's Sunday, which is a slow news day. What and there, you know, th tons and tons of people are in in the streets because it's May Day. What do you think the first story might be at CBC Toronto? Um, I assume 
that it is not what I hope it is, which is, you know, uh, three major rallies converge in Toronto at Queen's Park to make a stand after two years of awful treatment of workers and increased worker deaths uh, in, uh, you know, because of the pandemic or am I close? Am I getting there? It's no, no. I mean, you're you're adjacent, but like in a very, very weird way. Um, no, the number one story was police gather again uh, for the first time in three years to mourn dead police officers. Oh, come on. You're kidding me. <laughs> what? No, I'm not. I'm not. And actually, the like May Day wasn't even like the May Day rally wasn't even on the list of articles. Like, I don't know how far I scrolled down, but like at least the top five wasn't there. <laughs> what? <laughs> That is... I know, you couldn't have guessed that. No, I would not have guessed that at all. That's that's something, isn't it? It is something. Um, and so, yeah, the, the story uh, headline, police officers pay respects at Toronto's ceremony to those killed in line of duty. More than a thousand police officers gathered at Queen's Park in Toronto on Sunday for a ceremony to honor blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> I mean... If I if like I know C, like CBC obviously are class collaborators, which is just so funny because so many people that work there are not. I mean, folks, you work the CBC, like you just have to understand that you're doing the bidding of like some pretty fucking evil people. But anyway, um, yeah, it's very interesting that that's how like consent is manufactured today at CBC Toronto when um, you have this massive uh, worker and people's rally, and it's like, oh no, let's focus on the one thousand cops that are here. Uh, and, and that's not to say anything of the overwhelming coverage that, I mean, I'm in Quebec City. So that's like, what, 700 kilometers away from Ottawa. Um, Ottawa has been dominating our news like a lot this past weekend as well, because a bunch of fucking bikers were like, hey, uh, let's go do some biking stuff in uh, Ottawa this weekend for some freedom. And then the journalists like, oh, my God, this is totally serious. We got to cover this. Like, anyway, I... <laughs> Fuck that. Fuck that. There, there was some graffiti at this like biker's church that said something like no room for fascism. And they've been charged with hate crimes. Like everything seems really fucked right now. And I think that we could definitely use some hope in talking about worker mobilization, worker action. Yeah. And I'll just say, like, I know I know that so much of the news these days is driven by clicks and like what sells and what what gets clicked on on Twitter or whatever the fuck. But the cops having a like <laughs> that is not that is not a, um an article that is showing up in the top five because it's more likely to get clicked nope who's making that decision who's making that decision I mean, it's pretty fascinating for those of you who might be listening, thinking, well, why wouldn't you re report on something like that? I just as someone who used to work for multiple unions, uh, unions who have ceremonies all the time for workers who have died on a regular basis for workers who have died in the line of completing their work. I, I mean, I would assume then that we can um, expect CBC Toronto to be releasing all sorts of articles on people who uh, died in the course I mean, of their work. Uh, yeah? <laughs> 
anyway, that's pretty frustrating. Let's focus on what what we can be inspired by today. And I am very, very pleased that there's been so much worker mobilization across the country. And um, that makes me really optimistic about what could be in our future. I think that workers uh, and unions have had a really hard go for a while. And, you know, we've been uh, quite critical of unions as well. But it seems like we're at this moment where we might be at the precipice of something really shifting. We know that um, a lot of young people are becoming really frustrated at the state of work as well they should be. The state of work is pretty shit right now. And a lot of worker protections that people have taken for granted over the last century or so have begun to be whittled away. And it seems as though, um, you know, young people are done with that state of affairs. Yeah. One of the things that was so interesting during the pandemic that I, I found in my research that really didn't get much coverage was just like, when you looked at the proportion of who got COVID the most, um, young people were always outnumbered by their proportion in the in the population in terms of how many people got COVID. And it was a direct result of how many young workers, and this is like workers from the age of 18 to 30, uh, are, are forced to do shit jobs for shit salaries, for shitty fucking bosses, and they have very little power within their workplace to fight back. And um, in, in one way that showed up was in the numbers for COVID. And I mean, thank God COVID didn't kill people who were in their 20s as much as they killed other people because those 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 people fucking got a lot of COVID. Um, but it was just a good example of how invisibilized um, that entire tier of worker is in society and how so so often it's like the whole conversation um, that would be had by fucking journalists or by politicians is like the future of work, the gig economy, fucking side hustles, platform work, uh, all this kind of like hustle sounding language bullshit. And it's like, sorry, there's most people still have fucking, you know, normal jobs. (laughs) Like most people are not making money off of their fucking gig job that they might be making extra money off of that, but they're still fucking probably working a very classic job that you would expect is still part of our fucking labor fucking market. But it's, but, but journalists are not interested in telling those stories that has to be flashy and fun and exciting. And it's just like, uh, okay. Um, so you're all going to miss the story of when workers start to mobilize. And that's what we're seeing in the United States is like a couple of labor reporters, um, maybe, I don't know, fewer than 10 all across the United States, maybe fewer than 10. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair, but it, I can basically right now can think of only 10 um, who've been writing about this stuff consistently, consistently, consistently. And then all of a sudden, uh, Amazon workers uh, at Staten Island unionize. And then there's, you know, um, Amazon uh, campaigns uh, across the country and, and and being run by many different unions. And then all of a sudden you start to hear about this Starbucks there and that Starbucks there. And it's just like, oh, fuck, something is actually happening right now. And it's really exciting. Yes, it is so, so, so inspiring. And the thing is, Nora, in addition to people like working those regular jobs, it is the case that a lot of young people and, you know, just general people, I mean, gosh, this was uh, the truth for my father for most of my life, are forced to work multiple jobs uh, to make ends meet. And 
Uh, that shouldn't fucking be the case. That shouldn't be the case. It, it should be the case that everyone is able to, um, you know, have needs for life and quality of life taken care of um, if they have one job or maybe even if they don't have one job. Um, it should be the case that people are able to live whether or not they are able to be productive. And one of the reasons why all of this organizing that's happening lately is really inspiring to me is because I really do think, Nora, I really do think, I know you and I were talking about this very briefly this week, but I really do think that unions could be at the forefront of a, a massive shift that we need to see with respect to the climate crisis. And I think that if there is this new wave of organizing, workers are central to who is going to be impacted by the climate crisis, but also who is doing the work that feeds these companies that are making billions and billions and billions of dollars off of exploitation of the earth. I mean, it is workers that can really stop things in their tracks. And I think that, you know, uh, you referenced the Amazon organization, uh, the Amazon unionization drive, the Starbucks uh, unionization drive in the United States, both of these drives were um, heavily fought by the employers, the people who were doing the organizing on the ground. Um, the employers spent millions of dollars uh, who trying to stop the unionization um, in Amazon uh, from happening, so, uh, uh, trying to stop the certification from happening. With respect to Starbucks, that money is being spent right now to try to stop that unionization from happening. Similar things happen in Canada, of course. And it's because when workers do come together to fight the employer, I mean, really, workers have so much power. And any read of labor history will tell you how much workers can make a massive difference in the policies that govern all of our lives. This past week, I was, um, well, you know, as I've said, I've, I've had COVID. And so I've been in bed and like hanging out by myself a lot because I've been trying to isolate from the rest of the family. And I wrote this thread about the the wage conditions in uh, my industry, in the in the journalism uh, writing world uh, for freelancers. And um, and I wrote it after having experience uh, with a magazine where, um, I mean, the work that I've done for them has been finished since basically since fucking the end of February, with the exception of like a bit of editing after that. Um, and then a bit of work helping uh, fact checking. But, you know, like payment is nowhere in sight, right? Like it's like the, 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 the article got delayed and delayed and delayed. And the delays were not anyone's well, they were, I mean, the fault of things, but no one you know, like intentionally delayed it or anything like this. Um, but just because of the things that happened to delay this, it's like, I'm just not gonna get paid. Like I'm gonna get paid at some fucking point. And, um, and this is so pervasive. I mean, every single person that writes for magazines in this country who write for um, mainstream media organizations in this country have some sort of story of this. Um, and then the unfortunately, the flip side is the places that tend to pay the fastest are, are like the new progressive um, media groups, independent media groups, which is which is awesome, except that they also pay the lowest. And so you're kind of like in this weird catch-22 where you're like, I support your mission. I really love what you do, but I mean, you know, and I'll write for you, but it's like the money is not enough to live off of. Um, and then the places where the money can get closer to be enough to live off of, you like have to wait for fucking three months to get paid. And 
you know, people keep saying to me like, oh, well, you know, the, the media unions have really dropped the ball there. Like, wow, you really failed to do anything. And I mean, it's true, but it's it's fascinating because like we what we absolutely need. And this is the case for any fucking industry. So if you're listening, like just think of where you work. It's like if writers refused these conditions, if we refused to pitch, if we refused to engage, if we refused to, to hand over notes for, for copy editing and we did this together, they would change their practices. I mean, these are literally only practices that have evolved. In some cases, they've evolved like from, you know, well-meaning, progressive people who run these um, who run these outlets, but just have never had the pressure of the writers on like breathing down their neck to make sure that it's better for the writers. Right. So it works for the for the for the actual publication. So, yeah. So worker pressure and worker power is so 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 important and i'm obviously in this world trying to figure out how to fucking fix the shittiness of freelance writing um but it is it is is it what's what i'm most struck by is the actions uh the most inspiring actions in the states the successful amazon drive the um baristas um organizing at various starbucks it's like fully fucking average people who have political knowledge, uh, oftentimes who uh, are even members of like radical political uh, tendencies or orientations, um, and they're able to help like orient their coworkers. Although in some cases it's not that at all. Sometimes it's really just coworkers who have been there for long enough that they know how it works and they know what the problems are and they know how to poke a stick right into the fucking eye of the bosses. And um, and then they're the ones that drag their unions along into these fights because unions, are, you know, need to be dragged, unfortunately. And, but also fortunately, too, because it means that we actually can do that. So I don't know, Sandy, like, are we seeing the same kind of action in Canada? Are you seeing the same kind of revolutionary spirit that you're seeing all over the U.S.? I mean, not yet <laughs> but uh, but i say yet because i'm i'm hoping that you know some of the actions that is ha- that are happening right now are coming about as a result of people being ready for that sort of radicalization um for for that sort of um refusal that sort of re- politics of refusal i mean right now in canada workers i mean union density is at 30% about 30% of canadians or people who work in canada are a member of a union and that gives unions a certain level of power in canada in order to make demands and so on uh, if that if that uh, union proliferation if people were more uh, if there were more people who were members of unions that would increase the power um, that people had to, as you say, you know, uh, put pressure on employers, but also to put pressure on the government for all sorts of different um, needs that working people have. I, I wonder what it would have been like if um, union density was stronger in Canada uh, before the pandemic, as the government was announcing, in order to support workers, we're going to give millions and millions and millions of dollars to employers to make sure that you all (laughs) uh, are taken care of as uh, unemployment rates were rising. And we could see that um, a lot of that money wasn't getting to the workers who needed it. Um, uh, Companies were using it um, in ways that benefited the profit margin rather than in ways rather than in ways that uh, benefited uh, people on the ground. And so that's what's at stake. And I think uh, the last few years have really taught us about what's at stake for working people. I've really brought it uh, to the fore. And so I do hope that that sort of um, 
that sort of uh, radicalization is upon us. I think that if we wanted to test that, we should like take a look at what some of the demands uh, for workers end up being in the next little bit. Because, you know, we've seen um, fights like um, uh, 15 in fairness, you know, fights to increase the minimum wage uh, to $15 or to $20. I mean, honestly, like a radical demand would be to make sure that uh, whatever the minimum wage is, that it is the living wage uh, wherever people uh, live. And that, I can't even believe I just said that that was a radical demand. That's not fucking radical. <laughs> that's just, that's just like, that just makes basic sense. I mean, uh, another like radical demand would be that people would be able to live without having to work, that social services were adequately funded um, to make sure that people had adequate um, access to health care, whether they work for an employer that provides um, insurance or not because the public insurance is so good that people don't need to rely on having certain sorts of work uh, in order to be able to just access the basic necessities for their health. Things like that. I would love, I would love, love, love to see uh, a workers' movement that took these sorts of things into account. If you are not sure what kind of action is going on in Canada right now, I mean, there, there, is, there is quite a lot of labor activity. And um, one of the ways that I find out what's going on is from Emily Leadham's newsletter, Shift Work, which I totally suggest people sign up for because every Friday you get like a list of all the labor actions, like who's on strike, who's just settled, that kind of thing. And so she she writes for Press Progress. So Press Pro- Progress is shift work. You can look that up. I'm sure you'll be able to find it to to sign up. And it's and it's like quite amazing. I mean, there's like dozens of stories every week of organizing of 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 settlements of strikes of this kind of thing. So that's really exciting. Um, but I think that the other kind of thing that we have to really push against is um, how we orient towards people in power and how we orient towards partisan politics. Because I think that a lot of things do fall apart when we start to imagine, well, so we have these workplace demands and we can fight the bosses, but sometimes the bosses, um, like they're being enabled by government. And so, oh, so now we actually also have to fight the government. And then fighting the government right now um, in pretty much every fucking corner of this country feels like futile or feels impossible or feels silly. Like, I mean, Doug Ford just launched something called the Yes Express. Have you seen this, Sandy? No. What's that? This is his campaign bus. And it's like, sorry, you called it the Yes Express? Like, like <laughs> that's fucking hilarious. And Yes to what? I don't know. Uh, I mean, to everything. I t- well, I mean, yeah, everything. Just yes. Because he's a yes man now. He's going to fucking do yes things and it's laughable and and that doesn't make any <laughs> fucking sense no it doesn't but it's an oh it's an God, indi- it's an indication it. of like how not worried he is about any kind of formal opposition to him because if they were a little bit worried about it they would have picked a name that wasn't fucking chosen by a, a fucking four-year-old right like there would be <laughs> there'd be a little bit of a risk <laughs> in doing something like that and he's doing this because he knows that there's no risk and so I think that like we have to look at our workplaces, we have to figure out what 
we can do, what levers we can pull pull within our lo- workplaces. Like, are we unionized? Can you get involved with your union? If you're not unionized, can you can you actually organize to get unionized? Um, all of those things are things we can do. Like, if anybody wants a fucking connection to any union organizer at any union, call me, email me. I will tell you exactly how and who to get in touch with. I do that all the time. Email is editor at uh, com, C-A-L-M dot C-A. You can just email me and ask me. I'll, I'd be happy to do that. Do not send an email like that on your company email servers. Be very smart about that. No. <laughs> yes. But, yes, but, please don't But do when that. we get outside of the workplace, um, I feel like that's where we really hit a brick wall. And that's what I was like seeing these amazing May Day actions in Ontario specifically, knowing that people are orienting towards the Ontario election. And it's like, who? That's tough because... Doug Ford's going to win. He's got this Yes Express. Andrea Horvath cannot be fucking willed into being good because she's she's just shitty. And so where does that leave workers? Well, I mean, the the thing about elections is that it gives you an opportunity to talk about things that should be discussed during an election. But a campaign that is run in advance of an election shouldn't have as its only goal formal political power. It should also have organizing as one of its goals. So, you know, I'm hoping that as the, at these actions that are taking place across the country, that there are mechanisms that people are using to collect information from people who are attending um, these rallies and to expand organizing of uh, workers more generally. Like I'm thinking, for example, something that could be done um, for unions who, you know, as I said, right now, if young people are really uh, frustrated with the state of work and are ready to start fighting back, unions uh, in Canada that, you know, tend to kind of focus on an older demographic will need to do things that that sort of shift and pivot um, the way that youth um, have been neglected in unions in the past. And so, you know, some of the things that they could be thinking of doing is engaging student organizations in union organizing. And I mean, you know, I'm not just talking about, like, say, the Canadian Federation of Students or post-secondary uh, institutions, although, you know, where are those <laughs> post-secondary student unions yeah, right now? Yeah. Where have you gone? Where are you? What the hell is going on with y'all? That <laughs> perhaps needs to be its own episode. But I mean, even high school um, uh, student organizations, like get in touch with some of those students, teach them about union organizing, give them the tools that they'll need because many of those students are working. Many of those students have no choice but to work. Many of those students are supporting themselves and are also supporting their families and, you know, should have access to resources about how they can make the work that they are doing safer for them uh, how they can organize amongst um, uh, a group of people who they are working with to be more powerful, especially for, for people for whom this might be their first job or something. Um, the, the, the sort of education that an organized uh, workers movement can provide to those people is so, so invaluable. And uh, I really think that um, uh, an injection of uh, youth and uh, youth organizing into the un- union movement in Canada would be 
such a massive boon. Oh, absolutely. Considering how many fucking older minded, I'm not going to say older in age only, but there's a lot of fucking people that need to go. And if, because I, I hear this all the time, like, oh my God, like, you know, we're really fighting so hard within our union, but there's an older tier of workers who had it different, or who had it better, or who want to do it the way that they've always done it. And we're always fighting with them and it's not working. It's like, now is the time to fucking take no fucking prisoners. Like, <laughs> you know, there's, there is no reason uh, for us to not be bold and radical and authentic and start to actually like say like name shit directly this is the moment this is this is what we need to learn from these act actions in, in 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 successful organizing is be authentic and be fucking loud and 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 give zero shits <laughs> that's how we're actually going to inspire others and that's how we're going to build something and 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 fuck sandy you know what you know what what I I think I've decided I'm going to run for president of my union. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. The Canadian Freelance Union? Yeah. You know, I've been on the executive for a long time, and I've always saw myself as being in a support role to the president or to whoever was, like, you know, in that role. I was just the, the Quebec director. And I've never tried to, like, step out and be, like, the fucking president because it's just not my style and because we've had very good presidents in the time that I've been involved. And now we're in an election and we need a new president. So why the, f you know, what the fuck am I waiting for? I guess I better put my money where my mouth is. Well, as a proud member of the Canadian Freelance Union, I will support you <laughs> in that goal. I will support oh, thanks. your nomination and your election. Uh, I'll have to get that on a poster. I guess I'll have to now actually organize. But see how easy that was? Fuck. I just was like th thinking like, what what can I do? I mean, I have some ideas actually. And I've been thinking a lot about this, as people might expect. Um, thinking a lot about how um, how we might be able to really start fucking doing something within the industries that I'm most connected with. Um, but that's what it takes is it takes people to take that dive and, 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 and actually do these things. And as much as we're all super busy and we're all super burnt out and the pandemic has made us all like piles of mush, there is always there is always the possibility of action. There's always the possibility to take action. You know, there's one other thing that I would suggest um, that a radical workers movement really set their sights on focusing on. And that, Nora, is debt. Oh, yeah. I really think that um, debt needs to be at the fore of um, what uh, workers uh, movements are fighting against, uh, fighting to cancel debts, whether student debts or um, doing something about mortgage debts, whatever it is, you know, because it's these debts that people have, credit card debts, these debts that people have that makes for really complacent uh, workers. Workers uh, become more and more reliant on their jobs because of these debts and the consequences of not paying these debts. And that makes it really difficult uh, for, for someone to take the step, the risky step of uh, organizing against um, employers who uh, exploit their workers. I mean, well, all em employers exploit their workers, but exploit them in such ways that are extremely harmful. And so, you know, I would love, love, love to see a radical, uh, an, a radical workers movement that is saying, especially after these two years of, uh, of the pandemic, you know, fuck debt, um, you know, that is uh, joining rent strikes, uh, rent strike campaigns, that is uh, that are joining these radical campaigns to um, 
to to stop the ways that the the state uh, is a participant in how we are exploited by our employers. Nora, I think we should finish off with you giving us a rendition of Solidarity Forever. <laughs> no. No, I much, <laughs> uh, I much more prefer the song, um, uh, Which Side Are You On? But Solidarity Forever is a very, it reminds me of the time that um, that broke out at an NDP convention and uh, a journalist in the press gallery where I was, I was actually there as a journalist, so I was like there, uh, was like, why are they singing I'll Be Working on the Railroad? Oh. Oh, no, really? I think you've told oh, yeah. me this story Oh, yeah, and she posted before. that on Twitter. No, she, no, no, she posted it on Twitter. I'm sure you saw it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, and so, like, we've got a lot to do to educate people, for sure. But, um, you know, we, we've just gone through two years and two months of this fucking pandemic. We just finished, we just passed the third, uh, the third day of mourning. The third day of mourning, which is which is April 28th, which is the day where we remember workers who died in the past year. The third day of mourning where where there were workers on that list who died from COVID. And um, we've just passed this incredible resurgence of May Day outside of Quebec, because as I say, in Quebec, we've always celebrated May Day. Um, this, this incredible resurgence of radical activism in every single province in this country and territory, there are reasons for us to be taking radical action. In fact, they're not just reasons, but there are imperatives that we take radical action. Um, and so, I mean, we talk about this all the time on this podcast, uh, but I do hope that people look at someone like Chris Smalls, the the, the, the main organizer at the, the Amazon organizing drive in Staten Island in New, in New York and see like an average guy, <laughs> like an average worker who understands uh, the need for workers to, to work together and to fight the fucking boss, right? There are so many... Chris Smalls, everywhere in this country, there's people that listen to this podcast, you know people, there are so many average people who are ready to fight, who are ready to stick their necks out and to give it everything. I mean, he put everything on the line for that drive. And there's people that are doing that right now. And so look around your community, figure out where that's happening, figure out where that's happening in your workplace, figure out where that's happening with people who are adjacent to you, who might not be in the same kind of work that you do. Maybe it's the cleaners in the building that you work in. Maybe it's cafeteria staff. Maybe it's people who work in the parking uh, garage where you park your car every day. Like there's so many connections that we can fucking make. And until we make those connections, we will never get rid of anything like the Yes Express. We will never fucking behead or dethrone Doug Ford or whatever. The time is now to do that. And, you know, the spring is the best time to feel the the rebirth of radical spirit. Whoa, love it.